Ice spiders, ice spiders, giving you nightmares, ice spiders. Yes, they, they, they do sound scary, and certainly they've inspired some truly terrifying ice spider artwork, which you'll see today. However, they've almost become more of a fandom in-joke than anything else, if only because of Old Nan's epic delivery of the line, be it HBO's Old Nan, played by the late Margaret John, Riding their dead horses, hunting with their packs of pale spiders, big as hounds. Or even Roy DeTrice's Old Nan from the A Song of Ice and Fire audiobooks. One by one, his friends died, and his horse, and finally even his dog. And his sword fell so hard, the blade snapped when he tried to use it. And the other smelled the hot blood in him and came silent on his trail, stalking him with packs of pale white spiders, big as hounds. Old Nan may be the story spider of Westeros, and shout out to Anansi, the story spider, of course. But the question remains, what are these pale white spiders, also referred to as giant ice spiders in the ancient records of the Night's Watch? Are they real, or are they some sort of misunderstood legend? Is this, like, a symbolism thing? Is this some kind of metaphor? Well, friends, the answer is all of the above, and weaving the various ice spider threads together will reveal a frightening new theory about the others themselves, and what they might be able to do with their magic when the long night truly falls. So yes, it's going to be that kind of episode. One where I use my spooky effects music a lot, basically. So click the like and subscribe buttons, hunker down to avoid notice, and maybe just maybe we can avoid becoming nest food for a fresh crop of baby ice spider hatchlings. The others come when it is cold, most of the tales agree, or else it gets cold when they come. Sometimes they appear during snowstorms and melt away when the sky is clear. They hide from the light of the sun and emerge by night, or else night falls when they emerge. Some stories speak of them riding the corpses of dead animals. Bears, direwolves, mammoths, horses, it makes no matter, so long as the beast is dead. The one that killed Small Paul was riding a dead horse, so that part's plainly true. Some accounts speak of giant ice spiders, too. I don't know what those are. Sam Tarley may not know what the ice spiders are, but it's possible we shouldn't overthink it. They could be just what they sound like, some sort of spider-like monster made from magical ice. Admittedly, when you already have an army of dead humans, as well as dead bears and dead wolves and dead things in the water at your command, giant ice spiders may seem like overkill, but... It is nevertheless a possibility we must consider. So first of all, George R.R. R. Martin has famously said that the others can do things with ice that no one else can, implying that the others may be able to do basically any sort of ice magic that one could conceive of, or more importantly, that George can conceive of. For example, it could turn out that the others were the ones who built the wall, perhaps shaping its ice with their magic, just as the Valerians were able to shape molten stone and fuse it into place with the aid of dragonfire and sorcery. 
And where do the others get their ice swords and ice armor anyway? Do they just go down to Hefaced Ice Armory Surplus in downtown Heart of Winter? Which is, of course, conveniently located a block over from White Walker Daycare, where Craster's children are raised and taught how to ride dead horses and speak scroth. Of course, it's probably the case that the others simply have some ability to form things out of ice, right? Just as they can command cold winds and ice storms, and just as they can animate the dead with icy magic that leaves the eyes glowing like cold blue stars. So if the others can both make things out of ice and animate dead things with ice, perhaps they could fashion up a monster from ice and then breathe life into it, or unlife, or whatever you want to call powered by blue star eye magic. After all, the in-world legends of ice dragons basically sound like what I just described. And a fun bit of mythical astronomy trivia here, the ice dragon is actually first named in the story as a northern constellation whose eye is the pole star, or sometimes it's the eye of the rider that is the pole star. This seems to be George's version of the constellation Draco, by the way, which wraps around the pole star in the real world, and actually once, around 5,000 years ago, even contained the pole star, which is a designation that gradually shifts between different northern stars due to the cycle of the precession of the equinoxes. Ice dragons aren't just mythical astronomy, though. They're also magical monsters made of ice. And this very famous passage is from the world of ice and fire. Of all the queer and fabulous denizens of the Shivering Sea, however, the greatest are the ice dragons. These colossal beasts, many times larger than the dragons of Valyria, are said to be made of living ice, with eyes of pale blue crystal and vast translucent wings through which the moon and stars can be glimpsed as they wheel across the sky. Whereas common dragons, if any dragon can truly be said to be common, breathe flame, ice dragons supposedly breathe cold. A chill so terrible that it can freeze a man solid in half a heartbeat. As ice dragons supposedly melt when slain, no actual proof of their existence has ever been found. As you can see, these ice dragons are nothing like the whited Viserion from the show. If whited Viserion had breathed cold like the ice dragons of legend do, then obviously he wouldn't have been able to knock down the wall. He would have actually added to it, kind of like building a snowman with your cold breath. There's your new tinfoil, folks. Ice dragons built the wall. Oh yes, you heard it here first. Well, I mean, if Valerians can use dragons to build roads, then why can't the others use ice dragons to build the wall? Okay, I'll stop, I'll stop. Old new dude's gonna love this, though. Now, why did Viserion is, of course, a dead fire dragon that was brought back to life by the Night King, as opposed to what's being described here, which is a crystalline creature of living ice, with translucent wings that melts completely when slain. That's far more similar to another, except it's a dragon, since the others are also made of living ice crystal and also melt completely when slain. These ice dragon accounts are presented as unreliable sailors' stories by the maesters, but of course they may actually exist, and do, in another short story by George called The Ice Dragon, which I highly recommend, and which I've done a live stream about, which you can find in the Others playlist. The Ice Dragon in that story exactly fits the description of the ice dragons from the A Song of Ice and Fire legends, right down to the detail of being able to take on three fire dragons. So I, for one, have always tended to think that the ice dragons are George's favorite, and 
Probably there's one or two out there somewhere deep in the heart of winter. Maybe Cold Hands has seen one, if only we could ask him. And although George has said that the Ice Dragon story is not set in Westeros, I have always tended to think about it as one of Old Nan's Ice Dragon stories, since that's apparently a thing. John twice describes the cold wind along the wall as being, quote, cold as the breath of the ice dragon in the tales old Nan had told when John was a boy. Now, we don't know if any hypothetical ice dragons would have been created by the others, or if they might just be native magical beasts of the heart of winter and the shivering sea. But if ice dragons do exist, then ice spiders could too, right? Unfortunately, it's hard to say with any more certainty than that, since we've never seen an ice dragon or an ice spider. The six White Walkers in the prologue of A Game of Thrones were walking, or perhaps gliding, through the wood. And the one that Sam the Slayer slew, Sir Puddles, if you will, he was riding a dead horse, not an ice spider. But perhaps we haven't seen the ice spiders yet because it simply isn't time. Perhaps the ice spiders are for climbing the wall when the long night falls in full. Spiders are terrific climbers, after all. Consider John's Azor High Dream from A Dance with Dragons, as it does seem to contain a pretty strong clue about ice spiders climbing up the wall. Burning shafts hissed upward, trailing tongues of fire. Scarecrow brothers tumbled down, black cloaks ablaze. Snow, an eagle cried, as foemen scuttled up the ice like spiders. John was armored in black ice, but his blade burned red in his fist. As the dead men reached the top of the wall, he sent them down to die again. So here it's dead men somehow climbing the wall like spiders, which sort of works to imply the presence of ice spiders without actually showing them. And shout out to Tomas Kwiatkowski for his imaginative take on the ice spiders, which depicts them as being made of corpses. Thanks for that, Tomas. That's a truly horrific nightmare fuel. In any case, this appears to be the shifting language of dream here, as John's various experiences climbing the wall, fighting the wildlings, and fighting ice whites all blur together. But there's no question that, at the very least, Martin wanted to inject the idea of ice spiders climbing up the wall into the mind of the reader. That also seems to be the implication of a very cool foreshadowing scene that we can find at the end of A Dance with Dragons, in Daenerys' last chapter. Danny has just spent an uncomfortable night sleeping in the ruins of a tiny village out on the Dothraki grass sea, curled up against the minimal shelter of a broken bit of wall and haunted by astral projection dream messages from Quaithe. When she wakes, we read this. The next morning she woke stiff and sore and aching, with ants crawling on her arms and legs and face. When she realized what they were, she kicked aside the stalks of dry brown grass that had served as her bed and blanket and struggled to her feet. She had bites all over her, little red bumps, itchy and inflamed. Where did all the ants come from? Danny brushed them from her arms and legs and belly. She ran a hand across her stubbly scalp where her hair had burned away and felt more ants on her head and one crawling down the back of her neck. She knocked them off and crushed them under her bare feet. There were so many. It turned out that their anthill was on the other side of her wall. She wondered how the ants had managed to climb over it and find her. To them, these tumble-down stones must loom as huge as the wall of Westeros. The biggest wall in all the world, her brother Viserys used to say, as proud as if he'd built it himself. As you can see, George also likes to use ants, and sometimes even bees, to symbolize the others. 
because the others and the whites seem to be operating as some sort of hive mind, very like an ant colony or beehive. Which, yes, if the original Night's Queen is the mother of the others, as I have suggested, heresy, heresy, then she's a kind of hive queen, or even a queen bee. Shout out Missy Elliott. Now, the symbolism here is not subtle. The broken-down stone wall that the ants climb over to get at Danny is directly compared to the ice wall of Westeros. And thus, we have the implication of the others and their whites swarming over the wall to attack Daenerys, or perhaps Westeros in general. And as I pointed out in the Born to Burn the Others video, we can take heart in the fact that Danny responds by crossing over the wall and bringing the fight to the attackers, shaking off the ants as if she were a huge dragon shaking off whites, and even stomping them beneath her feet as Drogon might stomp down the army of the dead. Note also that right before Danny acts out this role play of crossing the wall and taking the fight to the others, Quaid has just finished whispering in Danny's ear through the stars about fire and blood and Danny remembering that she's a dragon. So once again, I will posit that Quaid's advice here pertains to Danny becoming the dragon in order to fight the others, not to conquer Westeros and burn King's Landing. But please do check out my Who is the Real Danny video for that discussion. The point for today, however, is that the attack of the others is represented by a swarm of insects climbing up and over the wall. So when you take that with John's dream of dead men scuttling up the ice like spiders, it could be that George is foreshadowing the eventual appearance of actual full-blown ice spiders climbing up and over the freaking wall and scaring the living bejesus out of the poor Night's Watchmen. Perhaps this is how the final pages of The Winds of Winter will leave us, with Dolores Ed pissing himself at the sight of giant ice spiders climbing up the wall towards him and his brothers, and for once, perhaps finding himself without a clever quip to lighten the mood. Or maybe he will still have a joke, I don't know, he is Dolores Ed. Now, there's an interesting clue about spiders and the long night to be found in the Lord of the Rings lore, in the Silmarillion, actually. To sum up in brief, at the beginning of the Tolkien verse, there is no sun and moon and no stars, and the world, which is called Arda, is lit instead by two shining trees, Laurelin, the gold tree, and Telperion, the silver tree. Now, of course, nothing lasts forever, and the OG Dark Lord, Melkor, and a mysterious spider named Ungoliant plot to and succeed in killing the two trees of Valinor by having Ungoliant bite the trees and suck the light from them, which in turn causes the world to fall into darkness, what you might call a long night. Since we have found extensive Silmarillion influence on A Song of Ice and Fire, it seems likely that this tale is not only one of the inspirations for George's Long Night, and really Martin and Tolkien are both drawing inspiration from the Norse tale of Ragnarok and the Fimblewinter, but potentially also a clue about spiders being one of the primary monsters of the Long Night. And shout out to Blue Tiger's Amber Compendium WordPress blog. Put it this way, if we ever do see a Night's King or even a White Walker, riding an ice spider during a new long night. It's going to be pretty obvious to Tolkien fans that this is a shout-out to Melkor and Ungoliant. Alright, so we're at that point where the typical sort of Brand X analysis runs dry. Which is, of course, where mythical astronomy kicks in. 
I'm being playful here, but symbolism really does take this thing a whole bunch farther. Because whether or not the ice spiders are real, they are most certainly serving up several layers of very interesting metaphor and, yes, symbolism. I don't see any reason for them not to be real, by the way. I mean, as a fantasy author, once you're sort of playing around with the idea of ice spiders, why not bring them out when you need things to get darkest, right? And as it turns out, ice spiders are kind of all over the place in fantasy and science fiction. Who knew? But even if the ice spiders do walk or crawl out of the north, they will also be walking symbols. Many important A Song of Ice and Fire concepts are like this, as some of you will know. Take Lightbringer, for example. Lightbringer is tied to various related concepts like flaming swords, fire-breathing dragons, bleeding stars that look like swords and dragons, and of course, prophesied heroes who carry the blood of the dragon and may wield flaming swords and ride dragons. Lightbringer is all of these things. Sword, dragon, comet, and person. And all of those things will be needed to bring light to the darkness of the long night. The ice spiders are no different, alluding to a number of concepts that are all interrelated. In this case, the others, the weirwoods, and astral projection. First of all, as Mythhead and previous mythical astronomy guest Austin Flowers pointed out on Twitter recently, spiders can symbolize fear, and more specifically, fear of the unknown. That's obviously why I wore my Fear Inoculum t-shirt, which serendipitously happens to have an eight-armed person with tons of eyes who is trying to do astral projection, it looks like. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, shroom in a tool shows whenever he can. Uh, anyway, uh, fear. We were talking about fear. And surprise are two of the ice spider's weapons. <sighs> get on with it. Yes, get on with it! Despite the fact that spiders are among the most useful of insects, they eat all the bad bugs, right? Many people do have a sort of irrational, overpowering, innate fear of them. They're creepy crawlies, right? Ah, get them off me. On a thematic level, this fear functions as a very nice complement to the concept of otherization that gives the others their name, and which makes for one of the major themes of the books. We are supposed to compare the others and the otherized wildlings and realize, as Jon Snow and Lord Commander Mormont did, that the wildlings are simply men trapped on the wrong side of a wall. Over the years, stories were told about the wildlings, Fear was built up, and after a few centuries, they became actual monsters in the minds of the Westerosi Greenlanders. Those soft, pathetic Westerosi Greenlanders. Now, I won't belabor the topic of otherization, since George does spend an awful lot of time on it all throughout John's story. But I did want to start off by talking about how the irrational fear conjured by spiders works in tandem with the concept of otherization and the irrational fear that it entails. Now, in fairness, the fear of spiders isn't entirely irrational, of course, as many spiders are poisonous. Poison! Leave it alone. Poison. Poison itself is an incredibly powerful thing, both in practical effect and in its effect on the human psyche, and it's strongly associated with spiders. One little bite from a spider or other poisonous animal can cause you to take sick with fever and even die if an antidote is not administered. Poison can even rot your body out from the inside, turn you into paste, if you will, once the poison is inside your bloodstream. 
So in terms of psychology, poison is associated with concepts like infection, purity versus contamination, and transformation. All of these things fit the others very well because they don't just kill you, of course. They sort of infect you with their ice magic and transform you into a ghastly walking corpse. Think about it like this. When the long night falls, the cold and death of the others will spread through Westeros, very like an infection, transforming and killing everything it touches, almost as if Westeros had been bitten by a giant ice spider and infected with cold poison. Now, plot twist, the others themselves are also the victims of infection, if my theorizing about their connection to the Weirwood Net is anywhere close to the mark. This is where I encourage you to watch the Weirwalkers video in tandem with this one if you haven't seen that already, as that's where I lay out all the evidence for the White Walker-Weirwood connection. Now, as I laid out in extensive detail, and as many great minds before me have posited, shout out Quinn's ideas, the others are, in many ways, spelled out to be Weirwood tree spirits, exiled Weirwood tree spirits, to be exact, who now walk the white woods in search of revenge, or perhaps even a way back home. And by exiled Weirwood spirits, I simply mean that the others seem to have started out either as the original spirits of the Weirwood trees themselves, or else the spirits of the first green seers who had come to take up residence inside the astral realm of the Weirwoods upon death. These first green seers would have been children of the forest, or perhaps green men, which is probably why the others are written as angry elves, or as icy ice she, as Martin calls them. The White Walkers of the Wood are forest guardians, like the Ice She, who have been deeply wronged, whose forest has been violated, poisoned, and forever altered. We'll come back to this idea later in the video, so just put a pin in that. And yes, that's a pinning dead spiders for science joke. The next thing that spiders are associated with is weaving. Spiders weave their webs with a silk that they can produce, and humans, in turn, weave clothes out of silk. Usually it's not spider silk, it's usually a silkworm silk or synthetic silk, but every once in a while, people do make a garment out of spider silk, like this one made from the silk of the golden orb spider. They've even made tiny little machines to, like, milk the spiders for their silk. It's actually quite intricate. In any case, the needle-like spinnerets and pointy little legs that a spider spins and manipulates its webs with also resemble the human hands and sewing needles that humans weave silk with. So this is a basic association that humans have made all over the world, spiders and weaving. From here, it's also fairly intuitive to link weaving to storytelling, which is a kind of web of words that is woven together to make a cohesive tale. And believe me, George R. R. Martin is working these ideas forward and backward, kind of like a weaver shuttle. So one of the reasons why Old Nan's Ice Spider monologue is so visceral, and why the Ice Spiders themselves really stand out, is the way that Martin incorporates these ideas of weaving, sewing, needle, and thread into the scene. Young Bran is at first not interested in Old Nan's stories, being understandably put out at his inability to train in the yard with Rob and Rickon. But as Old Nan finds the right topic to hook Bran's interest. So is this the sort of story that you like? She kicks into prime form. Old Nan nodded. In that darkness, the others came for the first time. She said as her needles went click, click, click. 
They were cold things, dead things, that hated iron and fire and the touch of the sun, and every creature with hot blood in its veins. They swept over holdfasts and cities and kingdoms, felled heroes and armies by the score, riding their pale dead horses and leading hosts of the slain. All the swords of men could not stay their advance, and even maidens and suckling babes found no pity in them. They hunted the maids through the frozen forests and fed their dead servants on the flesh of human children. You gotta love the sentence to sentence transition here. One sentence ends with, she said, as her needles went click, 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 and then they were cold things, dead things, almost as if it were the needles that are the cold, dead things. Now, Old Nan's cold clicking needles are an integral part of her story weaving, it would seem. Earlier in the brand chapter, it says, Old Nan just lived on and on, doing her needlework and telling her stories. And when John thinks back on, quote, the tales that Old Nan used to tell them during his first ranging north of the wall, it says, he could almost hear her voice again and the click, click, click of her needles. In that darkness, the others came riding. She used to say, dropping her voice lower and lower. The incessant needle-clicking also is used to build up tension in Bran's chapter leading up to the story, with repeated references punctuating the dialogue and leading up to this passage. I know a story about a boy who hated stories, Old Nan said with her stupid little smile, her needles moving all the while, click, 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 until Bran was ready to scream at her. So by the time old Nan weaves her way to the part of the story about the others hunting with their packs of pale spiders, big as hounds, the cold metallic sound of the clicking and skittering needles has already been playing in the mind of the reader for a few minutes, and thus easily transforms into the sound of skittering ice spiders and clicking mandibles. Of course, when we talk about old Nan's weaving stories, we must mention the Old Norns and Yggdrasil, especially because we know the Weirwoods are largely modeled on Yggdrasil. So the Old Norns live in a hall beneath Yggdrasil, next to the Well of Fate, called Urdebrunner, or the Well of Urd, and it is from there that they weave the fates of men and gods with the click-click-click of their sewing needles. Usually the Norns are referred to as being three in number. You've probably heard that, the three Norns. But in other tales, there's an uncountable number of them. And however many they are, they are placed above even the gods in Norse cosmology, as even the gods are subject to the fates which the Norns weave. Their names tell the story. One bears a name similar to the Well of Urd, which is Urder, meaning the past or even fate itself. The second is Verdandi, meaning what is presently coming into being. And the third is skald, which means what shall be. So, past, present, and future, essentially. The stories the Norns weave are not simply stories, but the story and fate of humankind and the universe itself. Old Nan's stories aren't just stories either, though. When Bran refers to them as her stories, it says, the old woman smiled at him toothlessly. My stories? No, little lord, not mine. The stories are before me and after me, before you too. So you'll notice the same past, present, and future element with Old Nan's stories. They're before and after Old Nan, as well as in the moment when she's presently telling them. And in fact, this is true of the entire story of A Song of Ice and Fire because of the way that George writes his stories. 
The events of the past concerning the last hero, Azor High, Nissa Night's Queen, and all the rest are, of course, being repeated or echoed in various ways by all the main characters of the story, effectively sewing together past and future. Bran, of course, does, in fact, journey into the cold dead lands in search of the children of the forest, just like the last hero. So we can see that Old Nan, or Old Norn, shall we say, has effectively woven Bran into the stories that he grew up on. This actually occurs to Bran himself, who calls to mind Old Nan's stories when he reaches the Night Fort, when he hears of cold hands and then later meets him, and so on and so on, until Bran has fully awakened inside one of Old Nan's tales. One which is trending hard in the direction of waking nightmare, but one which will nevertheless afford Bran the chance to be the hero. That's all really cool, storytelling, you know, George is a storyteller. But what does storytelling have to do with the others and ice spiders? Should we expect the ice spiders to web up our heroes in ice, make a few captive audience jokes, and then bust out a little bedtime story? A little Charlotte's Web, perhaps? I kid, but actually I should point out that the plot of Charlotte's Web turns on a spider's ability to tell a story about Wilbur the pig by writing words in its web, which means that the author had a pretty good understanding of the mythical and symbolic connections of spiders, weaving, and storytelling. So to put it simply, the link between the ice spiders and storytelling is the weirwood net, and the theory that the origins of the others are rooted in the weirwoods. First we'll talk about the weirwoods and spider symbolism in general, and then I'll show you how all that relates to the ice spiders and the others. So think about this. The reason that we in the fandom call it the Weirwood Net is because it very obviously functions a lot like the internet, aka the World Wide Web. Yeah, it's, that's what the WWW stands for, you youngsters. The internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's, it's a series of tubes. The internet is a place without a physical location, right? It's supported by a web of interconnected computers, each of which have servers that host some tiny corner or part of the internet. The Weirwood Net, similarly, is also a place without a physical location, an astral realm that is supported by a web of interconnected Weirwood trees. You know, let's go back. The Weirwood Net started with, with a concept of local to local connections across the country uh, and uh, it's, it's a series of tubes. Just as the internet stores something close to the entire body of human knowledge and the entire history of the universe as we understand it, so too does the Weirwood Net. They both contain the story of humanity, in other words. Now, besides modeling the Weirwood Network on the internet, George is also building kind of a magic version of what does actually happen in real forests all around the world where the trees in a forest will communicate with one another about disease, nutrients, and even predators through the fungal networks that populate the root zones of the trees. And that's true even before you get to something crazy like the pando organism. Look that up if you don't know what that is. I am going to make a separate video about mushroom symbolism and the weirwood sometime, as there's a, there's a lot of it, and it's pretty good. But I'm hoping that all of you are at least somewhat familiar with this concept. When we go down and down into the earth and... The weirwood roots only grow thicker and more tangled. We are supposed to realize that the majority of the weirwood organism exists beneath the surface. 
like a mushroom, and that Martin is implying that the Weirwoods may all connect to one another beneath Westeros, or at least in parts of Westeros. Bloodraven, if you notice, has a mushroom or two growing on his cheek, and of course, both mushrooms and the Weirwoods create a psychedelic substance which you can eat and use for tripping, astral projection, spirit flying, whatever you want to call it. Most importantly, we know that the red and white Amanitas mushroom-colored Weirwoods are in fact all connected in virtual space. And that's the web that the green seers sit at the middle of. A spider can move around its web with ease, and so too can the green seers move through the vast repository of knowledge and history stored inside the Weirwood Net web. And we also see that Bran and Bloodraven can even move their magical sight throughout the physical world, monitoring events in real time wherever they wish. Even though their physical bodies become trapped in the white weirwood roots, whose tendrils are compared to a spider web in a quote that we'll read momentarily and which you can see up on the screen, the Greenseer's consciousness is gifted with the ability to move freely through the weirwood net web. It's almost like the Greenseers are giving up their bodies as prey for the spider web in order to transform their spirits into the spider. In fact, it's exactly like that. And of course, when I talk about spider webs being traps and about the webbing of the weirwood roots being a trap, it's a trap. Obviously, that's very similar to the fishing weir and fish garth ideas associated with the weirwoods. At least it's obvious if you've watched the Weir Walkers or the Garth the Green Man video. To sum up in brief, a fishing weir is, it's a real thing. It's a lightweight wooden dam-like structure built across or into a river or stream which traps fish in their wooden meshwork. Again, just like the wooden roots of the Weirwoods physically trap the bodies of the Green Seers in their meshwork, making the Green Seers the fish. Furthermore, Bloodraven describes the Weirwoods as sitting astride the river of time, being unmoved by its flow, and that's exactly the description of a fishing weir. So there really are Weirwoods scooping out the Green Seers, like fish, out of the river of time and giving them access to the entire thing, the ability to move forward and backward. Then to make matters worse, fishing weirs are also called fish garths, which is funny for a couple of reasons. First of all, the word garth is also the word used to describe a central green area in a medieval castle or monastery, usually considered a sacred garden space, which is designed for contemplation. And that, of course, is exactly what a god's wood is in A Song of Ice and Fire, a central green area inside of a castle where people go to contemplate the gods. And the garths in medieval castles and monasteries would often have a central tree, usually intended to symbolize the tree in the Garden of Eden, so even more like a god's wood. The second reason this is funny is that Garth the Green was, according to myth, the first first man in Westeros who planted weirwoods and is described exactly like the green men who guard the weirwoods on the Isle of Faces. Accordingly, I've speculated that Garth and the green men were the first green seers who went into the weirwood trees, which allows me to construct the following ridiculous sentence. Weirwoods are garth trees in garth gardens that function like fish garths for Garth the Green and his garish gang of green brothers, who also wait at the center of their weirwood net web, watching the world like spiders. So now that you're brushed up on all that, you can brush off all the spiders. <laughs> the spiders! You're able to see how well the spider and web symbolism of the Weirwoods fits together with the fishing weir and fish garth stuff. I also want to emphasize the spying here, 
As long as a spider is touching its web, it can detect any contact that a prey might make with the web. So too does the green seer use the weir web to monitor the world, as I mentioned. And George highlights this facet of spider symbolism with a character known as Varys the Spider. Varys isn't a green seer, of course, but he is what I call a symbolic green seer, meaning someone who serves as a symbolic proxy for a green seer so that George can sketch out some aspect of how their magic works. Here's what I mean. Varys the Spider lives within the dark passageways, tunnels, and chambers beneath the Red Keep and inside its walls, using a network of children as informants whom he calls little birds. Green seers, meanwhile, also live in tunnels and caves with children and big birds, ravens, whom they use as a network of informants. So the comparison pretty much makes itself. Varys is also a eunuch, which may be intended to compare to Bran losing his fertility and then wetting the tree instead. Varys is also quite possibly a secret blackfire, meaning a blood of the dragon person, which may be intended to compare to Bloodraven, a blood of the dragon person. Check out this passage about Varys from the world of ice and fire. The spider, as he became known to the small folk of his realm, used the crown's gold to create a vast web of informers. For the rest of Ares's reign, he would crouch at the king's side, whispering in his ear. Aha, weaving a web of informers and information, and he's even crouching like a spider. Varys is fond of wearing silks, too, so George is kind of laying it on thick. Or perhaps laying it on thin, since we're talking about silk here. Varys often smells like lilacs and flowers, too, just like a spider who's woven its web next to a flower. More seriously, Varys is whispering in the king's ear, just as the green seers communicate with whispers on the wind. And just in case you're unfamiliar with that idea, the examples there are Osha, the wildling, telling Bran that the wind on the leaves of the weirwood in the Winterfell Godswood is actually the whispering of the old gods. And then Theon hears that same Winterfell weirwood whisper his name in Bran's voice through the rustling of the leaves on the wind. And then finally we have Rob's battle in the whispering wood, which is Nothing more than an elaborate metaphor depicting a struggle inside the weirwood net. The payoff line for all this comes in A Dance with Dragons, when Varys's treason buddy, Illyrio, uses the web metaphor to describe the world that he and Varys seek to manipulate, saying, The world is one great web, and a man dare not touch a single strand, lest all the others tremble. Yes, yes, we wouldn't want those other strands of the web to tremble. That's how you get ice spiders. No, but what Illyrio is essentially telling the reader is that he and Varys imagine themselves as the spiders who fashion the rules of the world, the web, and can therefore move about it unencumbered, above the rules that ensnare normal men. The plotting and connivances of men like Varys and Illyrio, however, cannot rival the power that the green seers have over the world. And for that matter, Bloodraven was playing and mastering the political game as Hand of the King, long before he ever came to live in a weirwood cave. That also means that George is using the character of Bloodraven to draw the link between political manipulators as spiders and green seers as spiders, which is pretty awesome storytelling. So going further with green seers as spiders, and this is going to bring us back to the ice spiders and the others, finally, as well as the promised new theory about the others. Let's talk about flying and riding for a bit. 
Brand's surfing of the Weirwood Web is, of course, described as flying, both in his coma dream and in his later conversations with Bloodraven. And, of course, real spiders can also fly, after a fashion anyway. When necessary, some spiders can ride the wind, sometimes over tremendous distances. I sure hope the ice spiders can't do that. That would be terrifying. Climbing the wall was bad enough. Is this what is meant by Martin once speaking of the others as riding down on the winds of winter to extinguish all life? Are the others riding the cold winds with ice spiders? That's going to be quite the invasion. So, sorry to disappoint you, but I don't think that we'll see flying ice spiders battling dragons in the sky. That would be more silly than scary. What I think Martin is really talking about when he writes of the others riding down on the cold winds or riding on giant ice spiders is the idea that the others are former green seers, or we might even say frozen or transformed green seers. The wind communication and spider symbolism of the living green seers then becomes cold winds and ice spider symbolism when we speak of the others. It's their version of the same symbolism, and it's a major clue that the others are former green seers who, again, may still be able to access the Weirwood Net. To be more specific, and this is the crux of the first part of my new theory, quote-unquote, I believe that the ice spiders that the others ride are the frozen Weirwood trees that the others may still be able to use. This becomes apparent when we consider the Norse mythology that lies behind the Weirwood tree-Greenseer relationship, and the more general idea of a wizard using a magic tree to send his spirit flying through the cosmos. And that, of course, is why I wore my meditating skeleton shirt that I have. So as we were saying, when a green seer uses the weirwoods for astral projection, it's essentially spirit flying. And the paradox here is that even while the weirwood roots hold your body immobile, the trees allow your spirit to travel through time and space. This is, of course, modeled directly on Odin's ability to use Yggdrasil to travel throughout the cosmos, with Yggdrasil translating to Odin's horse. In other words, the shamanic wizard Odin, the god of magic, rides the tree Yggdrasil through time and space. Yggdrasil is an excellent example of the cosmic world tree mytheme. The nine realms of the Norse cosmos are all anchored to Yggdrasil, which is the central pillar of the universe. So, mastery of this tree is what makes Odin the master of the cosmos, which is exactly how he's regarded. The idea of Yggdrasil as Odin's horse is more than that, though, for a couple of reasons. First, Odin has to hang himself on the branches of the sacred tree for nine days and nights before being able to transcend death and seize up the power of the runes, making Yggdrasil Odin's gallows tree. And in days of yore, the gallows were called the horse of the hanged, as the hanged man was seen to be riding the gallows into death. Thus, Yggdrasil is Odin's horse because it is his gallows pole. Shout out Robert Plant. Swinging from a gallows pole. Secondly, it turns out that the shamanic horse is itself a classic mytheme that can be found all across Northern Europe and Asia. From the lands of the Norse and Germanic cultures in the West, to the northern Siberian cultures such as the Tungus people, from whom we get the word shaman. Hat tip Mircea Eliade. 
It seems that even before this idea manifested in Norse mythology as Odin riding a magic tree, which was also a gallows horse, there was a widespread notion that the rhythmic beating of the drums that were played to accompany shamanic rituals were actually the hoofbeats of an invisible horse that the shaman was riding into the spirit world. That's probably why the Odin Yggdrasil myth is constructed the way it is. It seems like the mythmakers chose to emphasize the idea of shamanic astral travel as horse riding by turning the cosmic tree into Odin's gallows horse. This choice also very nicely emphasizes the idea that the spirit flight of the shaman is a journey beyond the veil of life and death, since Odin's horse riding actually kills him. And again, shout out to the meditating skeleton. Here's the thing though, the Norse myth makers didn't forget about the original spirit horse idea, oh no. We see that crop up in another of Odin's stories, and as another of Odin's horses. That would be Sleipnir, of course, the best of all horses, who is described as a pale gray or sometimes even a white eight-legged horse, which Odin can use to ride to any of the nine worlds of the Norse cosmos. But of course, as we just mentioned, the nine realms of the Norse cosmos are all anchored to Yggdrasil, the world tree, and gaining mastery over Yggdrasil is what makes Odin the lord of the cosmos. Ergo, it's pretty easy to see that Odin's two astral projection horses Yggdrasil, the tree horse, and the eight-legged Sleipnir are just two symbolic illustrations of the same classic mythological concept. Oh shit, did I just say eight-legged horse? Eight-legged, like a spider? And pale gray, or sometimes even white, like the giant white ice spiders? And did I just say that Odin's tree horse and his eight-legged spider horse actually represent the same thing, which is astral travel? And didn't I say a few moments ago that the ice spiders really represent the weirwood trees that the others can still use for astral travel? And that when Martin talks about the others riding ice spiders, he really just means that they can ride the weirwoods just as the green seers can? And just as Odin rides both his tree and his eight-legged horse to do astral travel? To make matters worse, George does in fact use Odin's symbolism and mythology to fashion his own Knight's King archetype, which in turn strengthens the idea that the ice spiders are the Sleipnir of the others, and that the ice spiders are really referring to astral travel, which means weirwoods. But Mr. David Lightbringer, there is no Night King in the books. Well, that's correct. And of course, you can get the full story on this in the videos, A New Night's King and Night's King Azor High. But the basic idea of what I mean when I say Night's King archetype is that George has several characters in the story and in history play the role of a leader of the others figure, if you will, through symbolism. Just as he has many people play the role of Azor High by carrying around flaming swords. People such as Beric Dondarrion, Stannis Baratheon, or Jon Snow. Or even Jaime and Brienne in Jaime's Weirwood Stump Dream where they wield flaming swords. The point of this sort of symbolic parallelism is to inform us about the true nature of the mysterious figure being paralleled. Azor Ahai, or the original Night's King, or Nissa Nissa, or Night's Queen, or whomever else. That's what transforms these mythic figures into archetypes. And the Night's King archetype seems to be that of a frozen green seer, an icy, Odin-like wizard. One of the ways this is signified is by having the Night's King role players always end up with one blue star eye. That's an echo of Odin sacrificing one of his eyes to drink from the magical well of Mimir, which lies beneath Yggdrasil, 
We've already seen George use that same Mimir, one-eye symbolism to let us know that Azor Ahai was an Odin-like tree shaman, meaning a green seer. First he created the one-eyed and hanged Barak as a symbolic Azor Ahai inside a weirwood cave. And by that I just mean that Barak lives inside of a weirwood cave and even sits in a nest of weirwood roots, just like a green seer, but also is powered by fire magic and carries around a flaming sword. Then, when Martin finally shows us a real green seer, Bloodraven, he turns out to be a one-eyed person who's being sort of hung by the weirwood roots, who also has the blood of the dragon in his veins, and a ton of parallels back to Barak, who, again, wields a flaming sword and is thus an obvious Azor High parallel figure. Then I noticed that Jon Snow, another obvious Azor High figure who dreams of wielding a flaming sword and has the blood of the dragon in his veins, also has one eye wound, the big scar left across his eye by Orel's eagle. And though Jon isn't a green seer, he is a skin changer, and his wolf, Ghost, has the same coloring as a weirwood and is compared to a weirwood. So you can see what I mean. George is using the Odin symbolism to show us that Azor High, the dragon lord, was also a green seer, a tree shaman. So it's just the same with the Night's King figures, but translated into the symbolism of ice instead of fire. Waymar Royce, for example, becomes whited and was left with one shining blue star eye, the other having been put out in his fight with the others. Then we have Euron, who has one glittering blue smiling eye and one blood eye that he keeps hidden behind an eye patch. And finally, Aemond One-Eyed Targaryen replaces his wounded eye with a blue star sapphire, which is what I would call not very subtle symbolism. All three of these characters have one eye which is sacrificed or bloodied, and one blue eye that sparkles or glitters like a star. These characters have now symbolically gained the blue star eye magic of the others, just as Odin gained the magic of the Well of Mimir when he sacrificed his eye. Now, I didn't just pull these three blue-eyed characters out of the story at random. All of these people have a ton of other symbolism that implies them as playing the role of a leader of the Others figure, which, again, you can find out all about in the A New Knight's King and the Knight's King Azor High videos and the subsequent videos in the Others playlist. And all that that simply means is that the leader of the Others, should he appear, will be an icy Oven figure, a kind of cold opposite to the green seers like Bran and Bloodraven, and perhaps the original Azor High. This makes sense, of course, since the others themselves are, again, implied as frozen or transformed green seers. Of course their commander would be a frozen Oven figure. So that is one of the major reasons why I look at the eight-legged ice spiders and think that's the others' version of Sleipnir. But Sleipnir really represents astral projection, so if the others are riding Sleipnir, then that means they're doing green seer magic. And since the green seers ride the weirwoods, just as Odin rides Yggdrasil, I have to wonder if this talk of the others riding their Sleipnir-like ice spiders isn't just code for riding frozen weirwood trees, whether or not real ice spiders exist. After all, we know the others really do ride dead ice-whited horses, but a dead ice-whited horse can also function as an excellent symbol for riding frozen weirwoods, since the weirwood is the horse of the green seer. Now here's where we circle back to the idea of the weirwood net being a web. It's a web that the green seers can use to move around, right? But the spiders that the others use to move around are made of ice, which implies their web as being frozen. You need ice spiders to move around a frozen web. I hope you can see the implications here. 
The others may still be able to use the weirwoods, but probably only after they have frozen them with their ice magic somehow, or perhaps after the long night falls for real and all of Westeros is frozen over. YouTuber confession corner time. Friends, if I'm totally honest, the original brainwave for this ice spiders are frozen weirwoods theory came while I was watching the HBO show. I know, I know. But the scenes depicting Bran watching the creation of the Night King at a weirwood tree, and then later being contacted by the Night King inside the weirwood net in front of a frozen version of that same weirwood tree, really did help me connect some ideas that I had laying around. Myself and many others in the fandom, again, shout out Quinn's ideas, had long been talking about the others being connected to the children of the forest and the weirwoods. So, seeing the children make the Night King while tied to a weirwood tree made a lot of sense as a simplified version of what we thought the book truth might be. And yes, several people did make jokes about George telling Dave and Dan that the others are tied to the weirwoods. Tied to the weirwoods. Night King was tied to the weirwood. Anyway, the idea of the White Walkers being able to access the weirwood net and contact greenseers like Bran pretty much flows from the idea that they used to be greenseers themselves, or perhaps they used to be children of the forest, or were made by the children of the forest, or the green men, something along those lines, right? So, seeing the Night King be able to reach Bran inside the weirwood net on the show essentially made me and other people go, yep, yep, that, that seems right. But then I saw that frozen and dead Night King weirwood tree on the screen and it suddenly struck me. That looks like a big damn frozen spider. Have a look and see for yourself. A frozen tree whose branches are weighed down by snow and ice to the point of reaching to the ground does indeed look like a giant ice spider. Perhaps that's why George R.R. R. Martin gave us this passage from A Dance with Dragons, which draws the same picture, and this is the scene where Cold Hands is trying to help Bran and company reach the mouth of Bloodraven's cave. Shadows stretched against the hillside, black and hungry. All the trees were bowed and twisted by the weight of the ice they carried. Some hardly looked like trees at all. Buried from root to crown in frozen snow, they huddled on the hill like giants, monstrous and misshapen creatures hunched against the icy wind. They're here. The ranger drew his long sword. Frozen trees weighed down by snow hardly look like trees at all, but instead like giant, white, misshapen monsters, huddling and hunching like, well, like a huge white ice spider. Right after that, Cold Hand says, they are here, specifically referring to the others, whom he goes on to describe as going lightly on the snow so as to leave no footprints, which is a hint at their partial insubstantiality, by the way. The deeper meaning of the world tree symbol is also hinted at here, which would be the human spine and nervous system. The trees are buried in snow, root to crown, which are the bottom and top chakras specifically, with the root chakra being positioned at the bottom of the spine and the crown chakra just above the head. George R.R. R. Martin is an old hippie. I keep trying to tell you guys this. Anyway, this language simultaneously implies the tree as a person having chakras like a person, but also that the entire world can be transformed with ice, since this is a world tree that represents the whole world or even the entire universe. And note also that the trees are twisted, just like the 
twisting and turning of the cosmic axis. This is actually the true terror of the ice spider as frozen tree. It represents the freezing of the entire world. One thinks of the poison symbolism of the spider here. Poison! And the idea that the cold and death of the others will spread through Westeros, like the infection from a giant ice spider bite. It may be that the Weirwoods are the key to the others being able to do this. Perhaps their objective is to reach the Isle of Faces, which seems like the central hub of the Weirwood net web. Perhaps if they reach those trees and freeze them, it's game over. Again, I'll bring up the Ungoliant biting the two trees of Valinor parallel from the Silmarillion, as that's kind of what this scenario sounds like. Anyway, it's only a few pages later that Bran is being carried through the tunnels of Bloodraven's cave, and we read of the spiderweb-like roots of the Weirwood. The way was cramped and twisty, and so low that Hodor soon was crouching. Bran hunched down as best he could, but even so, the top of his head was soon scraping and bumping against the ceiling. Loose dirt crumbled at each touch and dribbled down into his eyes and hair, and once he smacked his brow on a thick white root growing from the tunnel wall, with tendrils hanging from it and spiderwebs between its fingers. So the weirwood roots have spiderwebs between its fingers, as if it were weaving a web. Again, I think of Old Nan as an Old Norn, weaving Bran into the stories. And more importantly, the weirwood tree is the spider here, with the spider webs between its fingers reaching out to ensnare young Brandon as he hits his head on the ceiling. This strengthens the conclusion that the monstrous, misshapen, hunched and crouching, snow-covered trees outside have something to do with ice spiders. Another great quote that suggests a link between the giant white ice spiders and the giant white weirwood trees is this one where George has Tyrion recall the Winterfell heart tree as standing like some pale giant frozen in time. Pale frozen giant tree, pale frozen giant ice spider? Along the same lines, we have the frozen weirwood tree at the crofter's village that Stannis is encamped at, awaiting battle with the Boltons outside of Winterfell. There it says, the crofter's village stood between two lakes, the larger dotted with small wooded islands that punched up through the ice like the frozen fists of some drowned giant. From one such island rose a weirwood, gnarled and ancient, its bowl and branches white as the surrounding snows. So this time we have a weirwood tree look like it's made of snow, and it's punching up from the frozen lake, which is another major symbol of the others, like the fists of a huge frozen giant. Huge frozen giant ice spider? Now I'm having fun with this, obviously, but it really does make sense. If the others can access the weirwood net, then they would be riding the weirwoods. And the weirwoods have a metric ton of spider symbolism, as you've seen. The others seem to be associated with frozen weirwoods, and frozen weirwood trees look like giant ice spiders. Feel free to deny the truth, but it's staring at you in the face with hundreds of frozen eyes. And remember, the weirwoods are called watchers, but the white walkers are called watchers too. Twice, in fact, in the A Game of Thrones prologue. Perhaps this is why Corrin Halfhand and Lord Commander Mormont use the expression, the trees have eyes again, to describe the potential threat of the others. Speaking to John in the Frostfangs, Corrin says, the cold winds are rising. Mormont feared as much. Benjen Stark felt it as well. Dead men walk, and the trees have eyes again. Then after John has his first warg experience in front of Corrin and the other rangers, Corrin commands Stonesnake to make for Lord Commander Mormont at the Fist of the First Men, saying, 
Tell Mormont what John saw and how. Tell him that the old powers are waking, that he faces giants and wargs and worse. Tell him that the trees have eyes again. So these seasoned rangers of the Night's Watch don't seem to be referring to the children of the forest when they speak ominously of the trees having eyes, in the same breath as dead men walking, and things worse than giants and wargs. There seems to be some sort of known association between the eyes in the trees and the others among the first men that Benjen, Mormont, and the Halfhand are referring to here. And so, once again, we are left thinking that the White Walkers can watch through the Weirwoods. This also seems to be the message sent by the symbolism of the Weirwood Moon Door in the Eerie. The Eerie, by the way, is basically a symbolic Other's Ice Temple, with a forbidding coldness to its walls of blue-veined white marble that remind us of the blue blood of the Other that we saw when Sam slew it. And Sansa also describes the Eerie as, quote, a honeycomb made of ice, a castle made of snow. The blue-veined white marble pillars that line the high hall and which flank the weirwood moon door are natural tree symbols, of course. They're pillars. And Sansa compares them to slim lances, which are made of wood. And then later, to finger bones, which remind us of the bone-white bark of the weirwood and the bone-white hands of the other that, again, Sam melts with dragonglass. There are, of course, weirwood thrones here in the Eyrie, which make us think of green seers, and Bran's cousin is even sitting on one. So once you notice all the others' symbolism in the room, and Lysa's Night's Queen symbolism, don't even get me started on that, check out Signs and Portals 1 and 2, the weirwood thrones then seem like a pretty obvious clue that the White Walkers are green seers, or used to be green seers, or that maybe even that there's some kind of green seer rival deep in the heart of winter, or perhaps inside the weirwood net somewhere. That's the one I'd place my money on. We could even compare these dead weirwood thrones here in the Eyrie to the idea of the others riding dead horses, meaning dead Yggdrasils, which is to say, dead or frozen weirwoods. So here's the crux of the Eyrie symbolism. When Night's Queen Lysa has her blue-cloaked guardsmen open the weirwood moon door at Tyrion's trial, it appears as though the others are waiting and watching from behind it. It says, one man removed the heavy bronze bars, the second pulled the door inward. Their blue cloaks rose snapping from their shoulders, caught in the sudden gust of wind that came howling through the open door. Beyond was the emptiness of the night sky, speckled with cold, uncaring stars. Once we've identified the other's imagery, the cold, uncaring stars, and the cold wind howling, the important thing to notice is that all this is being kept behind the weirwood door. The implications are the same as what we've said earlier. The others come from the Weirwoods. The others are watching us through the Weirwoods. But what about the fact that this Weirwood the others are watching through is a door? Dun dun dun! So yes, most terrifyingly, the others may be able to use the Weirwoods as a door, meaning to travel, if they're supposed to ride into Westeros on the ice spiders, but the ice spiders are really referring to weirwoods, then is it possible that when the long night falls, white walkers just might start crawling out of the weirwood trees in a godswood near you? Or perhaps the others can only use the weirwood tree for such astral travel 
after they have physically reached one and frozen it over, or after the cold of the long night has swept over a given weirwood tree. Let's have a look now at the mother of all frozen weirwood tree quotes, which I always like to describe as a weirwood tree cosplaying a white walker. Outside, the night was white as death. Pale, thin clouds danced attendance on a silver moon, while a thousand stars watched coldly. He could see the humped shapes of other huts buried beneath drifts of snow, and beyond them the pale shadow of a weirwood armored in ice. So as you can see, the weirwood is armored in ice, just as the others wear ice armor. And the weirwood is called a pale shadow, with the others being many, many times referred to as pale shadows or white shadows. Like I said, a weirwood dressed up like a white walker. A moment later, we see the idea of the frozen weirwood as a frozen world tree when it says, Below the world had turned to ice. Fingers of frost crept slowly up the weirwood, reaching out for each other. The empty village was no longer empty. Blue-eyed shadows walked amongst the mounds of snow. So, when the weirwood freezes, the world freezes, and that's when the others and the army of the dead appear. The implication seems to be that the others will take over the weirwood net when the long night falls. Perhaps, anyway. Even worse, it almost sounds like they are crawling out of the seams of the bark of the weirwood when it says, Fingers of frost crept slowly up the weirwood, reaching out for each other. Almost as if the frozen weirwood tree were a door that the white walkers can white walk right out of. Then, when we look up into the sky above the frozen weirwood tree, we find more clues that the others can indeed use the weirwood for astral projection. We see, quote, a thousand stars watching coldly, just like we saw behind the moon door. It's not just the cold star eyes of the others up in the sky, though, as Martin has given them bodies, too, with the pale thin clouds dancing attendance on the silver moon. The others famously dance with Sir Waymar when they fight him in the Game of Thrones prologue, and their bodies are described as pale, tall, and gaunt, very like the pale thin clouds. Ergo, it seems as though the author has painted a portrait of the others flying through the sky above their frozen tree. And this is obviously why I wore my NASA shirt. It's weirwood astral projection, but the weirwood is frozen. It even says the night was white as death. But think instead of a K-N-I-G-H-T night, white as death, which of course is an other, who has ice armor and weapons and a horse to ride, just like a real knight. This white death knight is riding a frozen tree though, and up into the sky, and that's just a cold version of Odin and Yggdrasil, or Odin and Sleipnir depending on if you want to see the frozen weirwood tree as a tree horse or an eight-legged spider horse. Either one implies the others can still access the magic of the weirwoods, again, perhaps after freezing them or after the long night falls and freezes everything. So here is where the partial insubstantiality of the others that I mentioned earlier comes in. The green seers, like Odin, can use the weirwood horse for astral travel, of course. Their bodies stay put, but their spirits roam freely. The green seers can, however, jump their spirits into the body of an animal 
and thereby take instant action anywhere in the world, just as the others seem to be able to remotely animate and pilot dead corpses. That's right, it's basically just a dead version of skin changing, which is another clue that the other's magic is some sort of mutated form of Weirwood Greenseer magic. There is, however, a very important difference between the others and the Greenseers, which is that the bodies of the others are not entirely solid. So what if, once it's winter everywhere, they can simply sublimate into a mist and then reconstitute their icy body from the cold mists in front of whatever weirwood they want to travel to. Is this perhaps the point of all the ghostly shadow imagery used to describe the others? In fact, the others may not have any individual identity at all. That's what's implied. They're all twins or whatever. And I think they should essentially be understood as a removed hive mind, the former hive mind that was inside of the weirwoods. So having white walkers turn into mist and reappear may not be that big of a deal anyway. So when I say that the others are partially insubstantial, it starts with the no footprints on the snow thing, but there's more than that. The Night's Watch records that Sam finds say that the others can, quote, appear during snowstorms and melt away when the sky is clear. So perhaps they don't only melt on death, but can actually sort of sublimate into mist form and back again whenever they want to. That's kind of what it sounds like Tormund is talking about when he speaks to John about the White Walkers in A Dance with Dragons. He describes them as white mists rising up and asks John, how do you fight a mist? And then, building on the ghostly white shadow and pale shadow language of the White Walkers, Tormund describes the others as shadows with teeth and asks John, can your sword cut cold? He also says this. They're never far, you know. They won't come out by day, not when that old sun's shining. But don't think that means they went away. Shadows never go away. Might be you don't see them, but they're always clinging to your heels. Similarly, outside of Bloodraven's cave, Coldhand seems to insist that the White Walkers are there, even though no one can see them. Bran points out the lack of footprints on the fresh, unbroken snow and says, no one's here. And that's when Cold Hands points out that the others leave no footprints and are therefore still close. So the question becomes, where do the White Walkers go during the day? Tormund and Cold Hands both say that they're still around, even if you can't see them. So they're implied as just sort of existing without a material presence. I have a hard time picturing them hiding out in caves, just playing cards or whatever until the sun goes down. It makes a lot more sense to think about their spirits returning to the weirwood trees during the day, residing in the weirwood astral realm. That means that during the day, the walkers are kind of everywhere and nowhere, which is exactly how Tormund and Coldhands speak of them. This would make sense of the symbolism we've just seen that shows the others watching from the weirwoods and even emerging from the weirwoods. I've always thought of this as the White Walker origin story, that they are green seer spirits driven out of the trees, or we might even say an entire hive mind exiled from the trees. But at this point, I think it's also suggesting that they retain a connection to the weirwood trees, and that they can use them to ride down on the lands of the living, meaning use them to invade Westeros. Think about this, the others supposedly hunted the maids through the frozen forests and came silent on the trail of the last hero, stalking him with packs of pale white spiders, big as hounds, of course. 
But this isn't at all how spiders behave, is it? Spiders don't go out on the hunt. They lie in wait by their webs. They don't move in packs, and they don't swarm, save for when all the little baby ice spiders hatch and scatter. But perhaps the others actually hunt people by using the weirwoods to watch, and then as portals to strike. And this is how they stalk and hunt with ice spiders. That line, they hunted through the frozen forests. The line could almost be read as the others using the frozen forests to hunt people, which is exactly what I'm suggesting. And I even noticed that they came silent on the trail of the last hero. Kind of like the weirwoods are silent, even though they look like their faces are screaming. Now that brings us to the question of why would the first men, Bran the Builder especially, build castles around the Weirwoods if the White Walkers can use them as teleportation hubs. After the pact between the humans and the children of the forest, the first men were close to the children, and some of them, like the ancient Stark Kings, would have been skin changers and green seers, so wouldn't they have known better? Bran the Builder in particular was taught the language of the children of the forest by the children of the forest, so he at least should know better. Well, what if the purpose of all this was to contain the others inside the weirwood trees, kind of like a labyrinth for a minotaur. Is this why Winterfell is described as a huge stone maze in A Game of Thrones? Is this why there must always be a Stark in Winterfell? And why there seems to be a huge snowstorm emanating from Winterfell now that no Stark is home? Are the weirwoods perhaps like seals to the other's prison, shout out Wheel of Time, another of George's influences, that perhaps have to be maintained with blood sacrifice? And could this be the reason why the First Men have kept up a tradition of offering blood sacrifice to the heart trees from the time of the Long Night? Is that why in the very first scene in the Winterfell Godswood, the author seems to imply that the Weirwoods have something to do with the invasion of the others? Ned saw the dread on her face. Mance Raider is nothing for us to fear. There are darker things beyond the wall. She glanced behind her at the heart tree, the pale bark and red eyes, watching, listening, thinking its long, slow thoughts. His smile was gentle. You listen to too many of old Nan's stories. The others are as dead as the children of the forest, gone 8,000 years. Maester Lewin will tell you they never lived at all. No living man has ever seen one. As I always love to point out, Ned has in fact just executed the last living man to see a White Walker. That's his blood there on the blade that Ned is cleaning off in the pond before the Weirwood, which also means that Ned is offering blood to the tree. That's right, if the ice swords of the others don't get you, the ice sword of the Starks will. So while this ritual is taking place, Catelyn is speaking of darker things beyond the wall and turning her head to look back at the heart tree. And Ned, in turn, knows that she's talking about the others. So once again, I have to pose the question, are the heart trees the keys to the White Walker invasion of Westeros? Are the blood offerings to the Weirwoods the key to keeping the White Walkers satiated? Perhaps it's not only Craster's baby sacrifices keeping them tided over, but all the blood offered to the trees. And hey, the Weirwood trees drink blood, guys. Kinda like a spider. Although technically a spider injects its venom into its prey insect, sort of turn their insides into a slurry, which they then drink out. Which kind of reminds me of weirwood paste. Oh boy. Just look at all those cute little first men offering themselves up in prayer before the giant spider, all unknowing. Perhaps it's a case of 
give the giant white spider tree a blood offering or else it eats you. Returning to the question of why the first men would build castles around the heart trees and ward them with spells instead of cutting them down if in fact the weirwoods are portals for the white walkers, a couple of other possibilities leap to mind. Perhaps because the first men kings were green seers and skin changers, they didn't want to lose the power of the weirwoods for themselves. And so they warded them and monopolized them instead of cutting them down. Or perhaps the first men needed to keep the remaining weirwoods for the sake of the children of the forest, who did, after all, save the humans' bacon big time during the long night. So perhaps it's a case of the children still needing the weirwoods, because the weirwoods contain the spirit of their ancestors, and or the weirwoods represent the children's only hope at having an afterlife. Something along those lines. Or perhaps it was that the first human green seers thought the weirwoods to be cleansed of white walkers, only for their descendants to eventually find out that they were wrong. Perhaps these first green seers built a wall or barrier of some sort inside the weirwood net, imprisoning the others in the cold and dead half, only for that dam to break when the wall does, when the long night truly falls. Check out the Signs and Portals podcast playlist, as there are some clues that this is perhaps the best way to understand what has happened to the Weirwood Net. That there was some sort of bifurcation of the Weirwood Net by human green seers that mirrors the bifurcation of Westeros by the Wall. So one of the oldest and most popular ideas about the others that predates any of my theorizing in the fandom is that the original Long Night was ended with some sort of pact or truce with the White Walkers. So perhaps not cutting down the last heart trees was a part of that agreement. The first men did cut down weirwoods for a long time after all. So perhaps that was part of the problem that brought about the scourge of the others in the first place. After all, there is that famous line from the Wayward Bride chapter of A Dance with Dragons, where Asha Greyjoy, while in the weirwood-threaded wolfswood outside Deepwood Mott, recounts a memory of, quote, a tale she had heard as a child about the children of the forest and their battles with the first men, when the green seers turned the trees to warriors. This sounds a lot like a foggy, mythical remembering of the creation of the others from weirwood trees, as a way of protecting the weirwood trees from the sound of it. Whatever is going on with the Weirwoods, the Green Seers, and the White Walkers, it surely goes back to the mystery of their creation. This is where our story ends for today, but you can hear what I have to say about White Walker creation in the videos I mentioned earlier. Weirwalkers, Origin of the Others, Night's Queen, and Night's King Azor High. And if you want to get the real hardcore uncut myth, then check out the entire Weirwood Compendium podcast playlist. Once you finish the Weirwood Compendium, you're officially an OG mythhead. So, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on these ideas and to developing them further on a future live stream. Let me know in the comments below and make sure you're subscribed to the channel again with the notification bell set to all so that you never miss a Starry Wisdom Sunday. So thanks very much to all of the patrons of the Starry Host whose names you've seen throughout the episode and check out the link in the description below to join. The Mr. David Lightbringer would also like me, Nimble Dick, Thank all those YouTube channel member squishers. You too can become a channel member squisher with a cool squisher icon on your name in green. Simply click your mouse on that little join button right below next to the subscribe button. Squishers also get access to custom emojis that LML makes and one free super chat per month. Thanks most of all to George R.R. R. Martin 
And thanks to all of y'all for watching. And be sure to watch Nimble Dick Squisher Hunt. That's the most important gosh darn video on this whole gosh darn channel. That's the one where I sketch out the vast conspiracy, the vast Squisher conspiracy that ranges all the way from Cracklaw Point over to the Iron Islands and back over to Esso.